Hey gang, welcome to March's episode of Deep Dive. We are so honored this month to bring back one of our very favorite guests of all time, Creedence Clearwater Revival bassist Stu Cook. Now, CCR, as most everybody knows, I, they didn't really ever put out about out a bad album. This month, we're going to be focusing on 1969's Willie and the Poor Boys. Depending on who you ask, a lot of people consider this one to be their best. It was the third album they put out within one calendar year, if you can believe that. This is the one that features Down on the Corner, Fortunate Son, Cotton Fields, many of the masterpieces that Fogarty and the gang would put out during this era. I mean, these songs are still so timeless. They've lost nothing. So we, uh, if you didn't ever hear Stu's original episode, it was our 100th episode, and it is by far one of our very best. And so I thought I would just see if Stu would be willing to come back and talk about this album with me, and he was. So we get a lot of the behind the scenes, stories of the recording, where the songs came from, the jams, who did what, who were the MVPs of various songs, all those kinds of things, you know? We are so lucky to be able to hear from a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer like Stu Cook. He's one of the best there's ever been. And as everyone knows, he is currently out there, of course, with Cosmo Clifford, the drummer, playing in Creedence Clearwater Revisited, which is sort of their version of CCR that doesn't include John Fogarty. And if you want to know all the details about that, I would very, very much encourage you to go back and listen to episode 100. As I said, it's one of our very best. Okay? Here's me and Stu chatting about Willie and the Poor Boys. We're going to talk about Willie and the Poor Boys, which was released on November 2nd, 1969. It, I believe, reached number one. You guys, for everything I can see, this was before my time, but everything I read was saying you guys were, you know, the hottest band in the land. And this is your third album in that calendar year. Why were you guys on such a streak? Why did you do that? Well, the first album that was released that calendar year was actually recorded the previous year because uh. it came Bayou Country came out in January. Mm-hmm. For the singles, the uh, first single was uh, Born on the Bayou, backed mm-hmm. with Proud Mary, <laughs> interestingly enough. Yeah, you guys were putting dual singles on well, both we sides. Well, we, we weren't doing that, but radio was doing that. Uh. And, and it actually, I believe, worked against us. You know, there, there was good songs on both sides. Of a, of a lot of the, the singles. In fact, we thought Bayou was the the A side, but Radio mm-hmm. thought Proud Mary was. Mm. Well. <laughs> so, Proud Mary. They went with Proud Mary, but then uh, with with successive uh, singles, we continued to uh, get Radio flipping over, uh, and I believe too soon. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Mm. Which you know immediately kills when you know when you, when you, when when an, it's like another release, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it it might have helped the sale of that particular single, but it it killed us on the charts. And uh, you know that that's it. You know when you got a new one out, the other one starts coming down. The the airplay goes down, and you know people are always wanting the newer flavor. Right. My theory is that John was just because our record company sucked so bad. Uh-huh. Uh John was just afraid that if we didn't always have music on the charts, we would disappear. Wow. Wow. Uh, you guys burnt brightly. It was like, what, seven albums, I think, in three or four years? 
I yeah, mean, Rome, we were we were the Roman candle of rock. Yeah, you really were. <laughs> we, yeah, it was, we we call it the rocket ride. We were we you know just hang on after nine and a half years of of, of floundering. Well, yeah. we were learning our we were learning uh, you know with every mistake, but uh, there was no measurable success in, until uh, Susie Q. Yeah, you know nine and a half years after we first gotten together but that's crazy only a year after we decided to uh to pursue this full time so we may have seemed like overnight successes but <laughs> we'd been around a long time and we'd learned yeah. uh, in, in, in during that time period that we had a lame record label yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know there were a small independent jazz label with, but at least we had a deal you know we had right. someone right. we had someone who had distrib- independent distribution and they could pay to get the records pressed or the, you know, the, the product made, you know, so that they functioned on that level. Okay. They weren't so good at collecting the money yeah. and they had no promo department. So it was really in the hands of radio and, and the, and the listeners, but that, I believe that was John's underlying fears that, yeah. you know, we, we need to, to be present all the time. So he didn't mind so much when they, they turned him over, but I saw it yeah. affecting chart movement, but, but you can only do that for, for so long. You know, yeah. we, if we if we put out what they do now is they put out double A sides, right? They they mm-hmm. put the same on you know on on both sides so that you, radio can't do that. Yeah. And then they, you know if we wanted to release another single, we should have done it released another single after the the first one had peaked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no one thought of that. Do and you so think... we we so we what we did is we burned through singles out what six, eight, ten, twelve weeks max, right? So. Right. We're running out of material to to release. You know that that's strong. You know that's that's sure. That's AM radio friendly, and so up comes the. You know, John was writing like mad because of this situation, and so we're recording like mad. Yeah. You know, the hits just kept coming. Yeah. But but it was uh, yeah. Nobody does that. Nobody no. ever did it, and nobody's done it since. <laughs> they know better now. Well, let me ask you this: Do you? I mean, considering the tensions that were in the band, do you think if you had spaced out releases to even twice a year versus three times a year, do you think the band would have lasted longer, or do you think you you would have all been at each other's throats eventually anyway, and been left with a surplus <laughs> of great songs? Well. You know, I'd hope for the former, but I fear the latter. Yeah, <laughs> that's what uh, I wondered too. Because because we we had other fatal flaws mm-hmm. internally. Uh, the fact that we had no management, no real management. Yeah. You know, people who understood the business, the uh, the art side, mm-hmm. and the biz side, uh, which have to be melded. We had no one in our camp. John would go down and talk to. Saul Zance every day. Saul was his buddy mm-hmm. until he wasn't. You know, they, we would camp out down there, and I don't know. You know, I think I think there was like some surrogate father mm. kind of uh, yeah, could be si- situation going on. But you know, that didn't help us in the end. You know, mm-hmm. Saul reneged on his promise to give us a new contract when we became successful. John never got the ownership of his material back, which I don't think he ever really was told that he would. But th- in his mind, somehow that became a you know, a hill to die on. Yeah. And Tom and John were starting to have a lot of friction uh, because, you know, Tom at the beginning of, of the credence phase of our career, Tom had graciously stepped aside and turned it, turned it all over to John. Right. So as we 
became more and more successful, Tom felt, you know, you know, like we're doing yeah. one, two, we're, we're singing one or two, we're recording one or two covers mm-hmm. per album. Why can't I sing one of them? Yeah, good point. You know, yeah, he's got a why, point. Why, why can't I submit a song? You mm-hmm. don't have to, you know, I just want to feel like that you'll give it a fair listen yeah. and, and you critique it and I'll try and write a better one, you know, but yeah. no, John wouldn't, John wouldn't have any of it. So that friction... You know, besides the career not having a good trajectory, you know, we weren't, we weren't, our vector wasn't good. It was yeah. like, it was, it was really single to single. Wow. For all the, you know, the record company and no management and the internal squabbles, uh, you know, and the success, you know, throw, throw the cherry on top and then it yeah. really gets weird right. inside the cake. Right. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know that, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, all I can say is, you know, we, we're all, happy good blessed that, yeah. that that we had the career at all yeah right <laughs> burned brightly for a few years there and i mean it's one but of the look, most we're still burning we're that's still burning I, that's exactly what i was just going to say is that oh, these, good. these songs it they endure like few others i mean credence has never lost any kind of street cred or um appreciation you know they don't date those songs aren't dated. They're just as fresh and incredible now as they were then. I think well, that's a not, general. Not, I, 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 want to, I want to point out not only the songs, but but the recordings themselves. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Which which, which is what people think of. Yeah, they, that's what they remember when they think of the song. I mean, it, uh, it's all a package. You know, yeah. it was it was what the band did. Yep. The, the various parts of the band came together, and and this is this was the result. Uh, so yeah, we've uh, we have three generations of fans now, mm-hmm. going on four. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah, it it's really well is. deserved. Yeah. Uh, okay, so a little bit of more background about the album. In I remember in 1987 when Rolling Stone magazine put out their top 100 albums of the last 20 years. That mm-hmm. Willie and the Poor Boys was number 36 of the best albums of all time. And then wow. they did another one in I think 2005. They counted down the top 500 albums of all time. And it was number three hundred ninety-two. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently, we're not, we're not trending very well. <laughs> I hope they don't do a, like a thousand albums. You know, those are so heavily uh, weighted toward the toward uh, current musical uh, history. Yeah. If they'd asked in nineteen seventy, <laughs> yeah. true. true, we'd have had a totally different result, wouldn't we? Well, and uh, you know, I'm just shining a light on Willie and the Poor Boys. If I remember correctly, there you guys had three or four i think you had three albums on the top 500 of all time um, wow it has not been forgotten you know ccr's legacy lives on now i know the title of the album comes obviously from down on the corner which we're going to talk about in a second but was that always intended to be the name of the album and d- did you ever have any kind of was it ever a band discussion or was it always john naming these things I, you know the first one was kind of obvious the eponymous uh-huh intro that they didn't even use that word yeah. <laughs> that's it was a like self, word. they used yeah. like something like self-titled right uh-huh uh, back then but you know nobody used words like that uh, uh-huh. uh back in the in the 60s i believe john would, would be responsible that's okay i, 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 don't, I don't, don't clearly recall any any uh specific discussions about any album title except mardi gras perhaps oh maybe maybe pendulum i think i already mentioned this before but if i didn't i'll say it again robert criscow who's a notoriously kind of prickly guy said uh, he gave it is he, an is a. he still alive he is still alive <laughs> okay. he's still out there somewhere 
in his Brooklyn apartment writing little pithy reviews of things. Uh And he wrote about Willie and the Poor Boys, this is everything a good rock album should be, the best they've done yet, I think. And he gave it an A. I love it. Yeah, Robert Criscow. And it's hard to please. Goes to show you that, you know, a little pithiness goes a long way. (laughs) That's right, it does. He's made a career (laughs) of it. So, okay, let's talk about Down on the Corner. I mean, that's track one. You know, it's interesting. All my whole life, I've always assumed that he was saying the devil's on the loose. And uh, I just found out that it's the du- and doubles on kazoo. I had no idea. <laughs> and I th- it reminded me. I think me the that- devil, devil's, on, devil's on the loose is a, is a line from Run Through the Jungle. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he. <laughs> that's what I, I've been reading. Like, wait, it's not devil's on the loose? John singing is so inscrutable sometimes. You, it's hard. I when we got ready to talk the first time, I looked at the lyrics of Lodi, and mm-hmm. uh, they were completely different than what I had been singing my entire life. And that happens a lot with CCR songs. Now there's a name. For, there's a name for for misunderstood uh, song lyrics now, right? Another long uh, yes. Latin Latinish name. It's called uh, Mondegreens. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what they're called, Mondegreens. When you get so that's excuse me, that, that's a French middle French word from, <laughs> from the Latin somewhere. We have a lot of those because you do. Uh, because John had a very effective vocal uh, yeah, accent. Yeah. Yep. Uh, some would call it black facing. Yeah, uh, but you could go there. Yeah. He didn't talk like that. I mean, we didn't right. grow up in the South, and uh, we're definitely European stock uh-huh. through and through. It was, you know, really that all came from, I believe, Howlin' Wolf. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, I would I would say of all of all the the the, the bluesmen that I've gotten into, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, has the most boinin' toinin' <laughs> kind of, so <laughs> you know, it's it's a gravelly thing where where the consonants yeah. get all smashed, and then you really, it's like what it's like what my hearing is like now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you needed a hearing aid uh, to decipher the Creedence lyrics back in the in the late '60s. We get a lot of that. Uh, so where were we? Willie and the Poor well, yeah, Boys. Willie and the Poor Boys. It reached number three. Down on the corner, side one, track one. Yes. Cut one, as they That's say. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, when John know, presented us, did you did you want to well, further introduce gonna, it? Well, you tell. I had I in listening to it to get ready to talk to you. I was thinking if I didn't know better about the inner turmoil of this band, I would almost feel like it was a call to the to an earlier time. This is us, four guys on the corner, just playing out of love, taking it back to basics, us against the world, you know? But I know that that's not what really was going on. It's an affectation, like you were just saying about most of other John's other songs too. But if you didn't know any better, you would think, ah, this is CCR just go, taking it all the way back to basics. You know? Well, the, you know, the, you're right and you're wrong. Okay. The funkiness, right down to the album cover with the, with the neighborhood kids that wandered in into the into the photos when we were uh, on the corner jamming with the harmonica and the kazoo guitar and Doug's got the washboard and I got the gut bucket bass, mm-hmm. which my dad used to make. He used to make those basses. Taught really? me how to play that. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, yeah, it's really easy. You just get a wash tub and a really thick cord. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a broomstick and cut a cut a notch in the in the bottom of the the broomstick so to fit on the the edge of the the wash tub when it's turned over you can drill a hole and and thread it through tie a big knot so it won't pull out then you get a glove real thick uh, leather glove to slap it with is is really not pitch sensitive it just kind of adds a thump 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 down yeah. underneath more rhythmic and you affect the you change the tone by tightening and loosening the tension on the string by mm-hmm. you know pulling back or releasing the broomstick. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, talk about, and, you know, in the washboard uh, played with thimbles. So you got a rhythm section right there. That's it. That's all you need. <laughs> Throw Tom in on the kazoo guitar, and, and that's poor boy. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I'm Blinky. <laughs> Rooster's Cosmo. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Willie is on, the, on the, uh, playing the harp. Yeah. The mouth harp. So, uh, we, you know, it was uh, a... You know more of that revival yeah. vibe. You know, at, that, at this point, we weren't really going at each other internally oh, okay. as, as much. I think that, uh, the, the, but it was near the start of this stuff because uh, at, at that point, somewhere along the way, somewhere I can't date it, but John refused to let the band do encores anymore. No, oh, I read that claiming, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Claiming encores were phony. Mm. I'm going. Well, you know, they they can be. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't earn it and the audience didn't want it, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> other than that, you yeah. know, the people paid the money for the ticket, and you, if you, if you really care about your fans, you get out there and give them what they want. Yeah, at least what they think they want, or you know, mm-hmm. you know, depending upon, you know, uh, you know, there's always you know how what how you're feeling, how everybody's feeling. Are you tired? Are you sick? You know, but but John just said no more encores. They're phony. And Doug flipped out you know mm-hmm. so i mean they they went at it uh there was that was as close to a physical confrontation that that the band ever had oh you know, really where, where huh. it got beyond shouting and so i don't know when but i think it, it could have been around this time because it was a pretty heated year there was you know a lot going on and i and sure. i think that uh, that my mind places it during this this mm-hmm. frenzy 69 maybe early 70 but the, the problem we had with Down on the Corner is it wasn't a straight-ahead rock and roll song. Mm. And we couldn't play it. 
Really? We weren't, I mean, we, we not well. John showed us his song. We, and everybody said, that ain't rock and roll. <laughs> really? But that yeah. was sort of, but your whole thing was to mix the bayou well, we, we felt country. That, well, it was blues and country was, was the yeah. mix. But we, when we got into Calypso, mm. it, it was just a groove that we weren't any good at. Huh. I, I mean, I, I felt, and I, I, I seem to recall there being a lot of excuses amongst uh, the, the rhythm section as to, you know, why it wasn't coming together. You know, it just took yeah. more work. You know, it was something yeah. really new for us. You know the the song is pretty pretty fast tempo, uh-huh. and I think I think that was about as slow as we could play it. Mm. You know, uh, it, it's harder to play something with feel slow slowly. Yeah, you know, the, it's harder to groove at a, at a slower tempo, and then then and and that's true up to a certain point when when you know when you get to the where the where the there's a range where you can groove it feels good, and then you get to the point where it's too fast to groove. Mm-hmm. And I think this this track is right at the edge of being mm. too fast to groove. Revisited has played it, tried to play it at a at a more slow, uh, you know, a little more laid back, and, yeah. and so so that it swings more. You know, really strong. Yeah. So a really, but but our recording is. So it's more like a rock and roll tune, like that, more mm. a four four straight tune, without without the swing. Well, after all the hand wringing and the in the excuse making and the bitching and the moaning, we finally we finally got it recorded. Uh, you know what you hear is the best we could do. We either came back on on, on another day and, and did it, or we, this one got us into. Uh, Right. And into a lot, you know, more takes. Most of the stuff was, you know, we were a really well rehearsed band. We, we went in the studio. We didn't waste any time or money. Uh, we didn't try and get creative there. It, was, it wasn't a, uh, a place to go. It was a place where the pressure was on. Well, I was going to say, are you one of the people who sings backup? Are you one of the people singing down on the corner, or is that John? No. People? That's, that's no. John doing the multi track thing. Is it? Okay, they're all him. Those are all him, yeah. Okay, I wondered about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could hear you could hear a Midnight Special, yep. Proud Mary, Down on the Corner. The only tracks that I recall that the band was allowed to sing on, mm. which uh, you know, and I say that with you know, mm-hmm. you can probably read into you my your words on purpose. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, Who'll Stop the Rain and uh, The Nighttime mm-hmm. Is the Right Time. Oh, okay, okay. And I thought that it, you know, it. There was nothing wrong with with our singing, you know. John, John just had this expedient way of working, which didn't include us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that we couldn't do it, right? Or that we didn't want to do it, or that we right. weren't interested. That we just wanted to go play with our cars and chase <laughs> girls or anything. You know, it's just you know he would, he would basically invite us to leave when yeah. when uh, and I'm going well, but you know, which you know led to. Questions like, "What's going on here? Right, right. <laughs> is this this is not this is changing from the band that that we used to be mm-hmm. in to uh, to just you know John Fogarty and the other guys." Right, right. Uh, I can see so that. you know, but nonetheless, success was uh, was at our door, and at that point, all of us weren't of any inclination to to you know not answer when the exactly when, Good when it was knocking. Sure. So we went along with it, you know, and, and of course, it's just encouraged it okay. which made it even which made it even harder uh down the road you know for, for tom 
Yeah. And, and and then that whole situation got turned around into into Mardi Gras by John, mm-hmm. and I throw that at his foot, at his feet every time I get the opportunity. That album was John's album, an example of John leading from the back, not the mm-hmm. front. Mm-hmm. But that's not the album we're talking about today. Yeah, I so, remember you uh, mentioning that when we talked before. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. like, okay, you guys think you can do better? You go ahead and do that. And he's being sort of yeah. passive aggressive. And, and if you don't do it, then we don't, you know, then I quit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, start, you know, Mardi Gras time came around. Oh, by the way, start writing and, and get re- mm-hmm. getting ready to sing the songs you wrote because I'm not singing them either. But mm-hmm. aren't you the lead singer of the band? <laughs> oh, not anymore. It's a democracy now. Wait a minute. You just decided for the, for the three of us that it's a democracy. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, we had trouble with that track because it was so unlike. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a, it's still to this day to my musical ear one of the more difficult tracks to perform. Interesting. Uh, because of its unique, you know, the feel, the whole Sign- time signature, or whatever. Yeah, the vibe of it. Yeah, yeah. well, it's a four-four track, but you know, we've all everybody's heard reggae for, mm-hmm. for decades now. You know, and 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 it it was an early, you know, attempt at world music in a way. Yeah. You know, it, it, for us, it was it was formed because there wasn't anything for us to really relate it to. You know, it wasn't a, a blues shuffle. It wasn't a straight fours blues tune. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a six eight tune like I put a spell on you. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was just a different animal, and and uh, you know, it it forced us to uh, to bring our music musicianship up a level mm-hmm. or a notch, yeah. anyhow. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Um... Okay, let's go to track two. It came out of the sky. This is a fun song about a farmer finding a UFO, basically, in his field. is um, one of the songs that I think you especially shine on and um, thank you yeah for sure and the reason I say that is because it the song it's sort of it's so rollicking it's like no one can get out of step and and it made me wonder if are these songs largely being recorded live all of you guys in one room oh yeah that's the way Creedence recorded we never recorded any other way that's what I figured. Because this song especially, if one guy is even remotely out of step for a second, the whole thing falls apart. Well, let me tell you, absolutely. Let me tell you why this why this track is so good. And I have this, every time I try and get Cosmo to play this track, he says, no, I hate that song. I won't <laughs> play it. Yeah. I mean, I said, let's play this as sound check. And he goes, yeah. I hate it. I hate it. Then he gives me a little smile. And so I have to drag it out of him. 
The reason it is so good is because he played so well. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it was for me, when, when Doug plays like that, you know, it makes me look really good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a song that's definitely driven by the rhythm section. You guys have yeah. to hold it down or else it doesn't work. And that's why I think it's a really, you know, considering now, and somebody, you know, today, if they were to produce a song like this, they'd just, they'd sample something and they'd, you know, they'd yeah. dub it over and over. You guys had to get it perfect in three minutes in one take and you managed it. And it's kind of a miracle, you know? So that's well, why I think that, that's you know, that was what we, stri- we strive for that every, with, with every I track. I know. Back you know, then when, you had to. That's true. Back then you had to. Well, I mean, we were playing as a, as a unit. Uh, they didn't have to fix it that way. If we, the, the machines got good enough, uh, fast enough uh, on their, on their, with their uh, logic boards and so on where you could punch in and punch out, right? Yeah. So you could drop in a line, drop in a note, if, even a note if there was a space. Mm-hmm. Or you could put it on another track and then combine those two tracks to a third track, but that resulted in a degradation of, of, of a little bit of audio quality and an increase in, in the hiss level because mm-hmm. you're just adding the hiss, inherent background hiss noise to, to a third track, which has its own hiss mm-hmm. uh, when you hit the, the record button. It's just inherent to the, to the process. So I don't believe I ever sat in the studio and, and redid an entire bass line. Uh, uh, you, you know, now I think we call recording now, or, you know, in recent years, okay, we got a good, uh, we got a good drum track. Let's start fixing, <laughs> you know, which yeah. was, drums back then, you know, your drums were the hardest thing to fix. You, I, yeah. we got to the, we had an engineer of Russ Gary who, who got to be so good that he could actually punch in all eight tracks of, or, of drums or four tracks of drums, however many tracks we were using for drums. So like if, if, if there was a space and, and you needed to get, get something, you know, mm-hmm. like, like a big hit at the end, mm-hmm. he could do that, you know, no so we wouldn't have to, you know, the whole track wouldn't be lost because of a, of the inability to, you know, there's something happened at the end, Doug dropped the stick or, you know, we could fix parts like, and we got pretty good at it. And guys used to, Use razor blades and cut little windows. Mm. I can remember reading production notes on on, on the Doors albums, mm. where they would cut little windows out of the where, where the track was, just to make a hole. If they wanted to remove a note, they would take a razor blade. Mm. And then we Gosh. we like if 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 you wanted to take a few bars or something from another track, you would just throw it in the splicer and and cut it from from a track from the same session. Yeah. You know that uh, you know previous track, or try one more and see if we can't get that that part right, and then we'll just take that and splice it in. Right. We right. we rarely did that. You know these we were so we were rehearsed enough where we could play these songs. You know, up to four or five times, and and one of them would would be end up being the master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that what was left was a you know sweetening and guitar solo and, mm-hmm. and vocals. Okay. You know the the rest was already was already done. We should say in in t- in building on this idea of everyone being in one room. This was recorded at what you guys called Cosmos Factory. That was just crisp and uh, yeah. and you know the it's a driving song. The, the 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 band drives the vocal. The vocal drives the band. It's, it's a pretty good you know tongue in cheek take on you know our our capital 
Yeah. <laughs> all of its glory. Yes. Well, so what, what I was going to say a second ago, just for our visualization purposes, the cover of the Cosmos Factory album is you guys in kind of this room, and that's your studio. Is that the room that this album would have been recorded in? So when you guys, when you're talking no. about playing, oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, no. That was a rehearsal studio. Ah. We never did any master-type recording. We rehearsed there all the time. We might have shot a video back there, but Credence never used that room for mm. anything but, but rehearsal and, okay. and uh, of course, the photo shoot for the album cover, Yeah. Okay. Cosmos Factory. Okay. Just curious. So yeah. let's, let's talk about Cotton Fields. Now, this is one of two Lead Belly songs. When I was a little bitty baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle in their mold. Cotton field back home. It was down in Louisiana, just about a mile from Texarkana in their mold. Cotton field back home. When them cotton balls get rotten. Well, actually, no. This is this is like this is an Elizabeth Cotton song, I believe. Really? If I'm not mistaken. I thought it was Lead Belly. That's everything I saw. I thought Midnight Special was his. I think they both are. Oh, really? I yeah. thought. Hmm. Well, you're the re- you, you've well. done the research. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the one with a bad memory. <laughs> I'm not an expert on this stuff, but everything I read is yeah. Cotton Fields is an old Lead Belly song. Okay. Well, Special. there you go. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, we did. We, we we did. Those were the two covers on on that album, right? Right, right. And both Lead Belly, and that's why I was going to ask: Are you are you were you a big blues guy too, or was this more John's influence? Or well, we all liked black music, rhythm and yeah, blues. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bands like Ike and Tina. There you go. Yeah. You know, I mean that that was. And, and we all liked the, you know, the, the stuff Phil Spector did with the, with the girl groups. It had enough of, of uh, the R&B in it, you know, even though it was directed and, and you know, created for a, a white audience. It had enough because those, you know, they were black artists. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, that, and you, you couldn't hide that. I mean, they couldn't hide it. 
no one could hide it. That was, they grew up listening to the same music that we did. Pretty, you know, they were part of the music that we listened to when we were growing up as well. Yeah. So we trended much more heavily toward uh, toward what was called race music when we were growing up. You know, uh, Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas. There you go. Stax Records, Wilson Pickett, later Motown. Although they were they were always more, they didn't. You know, they they were more of a produced mm-hmm. type of thing, but we were way more of a of a, of a blues influenced band. The country came came in later. When we were kids, we had a we had a uh, a uh, R and B station in the Bay Area called KWBR. I think it was in this transmitter might have been in Berkeley, but the station was in Oakland. And so we heard you know R and B. We heard Howlin' Wolf and and uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, and you know we heard all these guys when they were having their successful careers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a phenomenon where the uh, the ionosphere that surrounds the planet moves further away. <laughs> uh, and so radio signals travel further. Lower frequency radio signals oh. bounce off the ionosphere and come back down to the Earth some distance uh, away from their normal broadcast, you know, true line of sight yeah. Broadca- broadcast. So we were listening to a radio, a country station that came out of Sacramento, California, which was nearly a hundred miles north. Mm-hmm. We could hear it at night. Mm. That was KRAK, crack radio. <laughs> so, so we we heard Buck Owens and and yeah, there you go. and you know and and Patsy Cline and and Porter Wagner and you know we heard we heard all the the, the country hits of the day in the in the. 50s, late 50s, early 60s. You know, when we were teenagers, mm-hmm. so we we, were, we weren't unaware of country music, but you know, a lot by then country music had gotten very orchestral. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of bare bones country music. Besides, that's why Buck Owens was such a treat. Yeah, you know, because he was he was more like a rocker, right, uh, right. Then, then uh, you know, Patsy Cline, you know, uh, and I mean, they, they had you know, the string arrangements, right? Were yeah. you know, they were pretty lush recordings. It's great uh, stuff. Yeah, terrific yeah. stuff. So we, we had a we had a choice, you know. And pop, by the you know, pop music was was you know they were just barely playing Elvis. Pat Boone was preferable. You know, Pat Domino, Little Richard, mm-hmm, Jerry Lee mm-hmm. Lewis, all these people were sneaking onto onto AM radio. You know, nobody really knew what their live act looked like, <laughs> <laughs> right. how, outrage, how outrageous they were, right. you know, because because of you know the the circuit that they played on sure uh but you know no one ever saw anybody playing the piano with their foot you know like jerry right. lee or, or little richard you know standing up playing these guys were showmen and they were mm-hmm. you know incredible singers they, they, and songs yeah, yeah they were the beginning of of of, of the new they the really new were. uh, uh yeah. formula uh you know of music yeah. popular the, music the architects really, as yeah little exactly they, they built yeah. the foundations yeah so yeah. uh, okay, we went. We went back. You know, John picked these two songs, and interestingly enough, uh, these songs are both in the public domain. Mm-hmm. It had been for decades, right? Uh, but so you can you can copyright your own version of it. Oh yeah, good point. Okay. So so these were credited as John Fogerty compositions. Yeah. He changed, he changed nothing. I mean, except the arrangement. Yeah. As far as the Midnight Special goes, uh, we can talk about that. We'll kind of lump these two together. 
Uh, Johnny Rivers has had 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 a hit with a version of the Midnight Special a few years before yours. Did you remember that, or did you remember? Was anything? Were these versions what was sort of keeping this a song like that top of mind for you, or were did you were you guys going back to the source? Do you think with Lead Belly? to the table You see the same old thing Ain't no food upon a table There's no fog up in the pan But you better not complain, boy You get in trouble with the man. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special. I think it was the source. Uh, Johnny Rivers was was never, you know, that, that it was uh, Johnny Rivers was like a Bobby Darren point two point oh, you know, just a, a later. Or, oh, well, you know, they shared they shared time on the charts. I think Bobby Darren passed away way too too young. Yeah. He could have been like another Frank Sinatra kind of guy, actually. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I rarely paid any attention to Johnny Rivers other than to, that he played a really cool Fender Thin Line acoustic, uh, electric acoustic kind of guitar that Dave Grohl plays now. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> wow. Comes around. What goes around comes around, huh? Yeah, uh, I think that was originally the Johnny Rivers model. Uh, interesting. But yeah, it had a Gibson body and a Fender neck, Fender kind of neck on it. Huh. As I recall, I may okay. be mixing up stuff, you know. I'm, yeah. So don't ever, don't ever say that Stu is accurate <laughs> about anything. He just has recollections. We just, we just like hearing from Stu. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah, you have to fact check him like like mad. Yeah. Okay. But but they, but they, but they were uh, they're they're both fun songs. I think they helped those doing those recordings really helped tie us to uh, to roots rock Americana. You know, yeah. we're, while we're not really considered Americana, we are. America's premier roots rock band and I think by doing those two recordings you know we nailed that down for sure because they were good reachbacks they're traditional songs rather than mm-hmm. than covers of, of like a song like Suzy Q or Nighttime yeah. is the Right Time or Ooby Dooby you know which were which were more you know hits from the 50s right okay let's talk about Poor Boy Shuffle what and uh it's just basically a jam, you know, an instrumental jam. It's a lot of fun. I was reading uh, the original review, I believe, of Willie and the Poor Boys in Rolling Stone suggests that the cover, fo- and I was saving this until now anyway, the cover photo for the album is apparently you guys, you're staged that about a block away from Fantasy Studios. And you're out there playing, and whatever it is you guys are making up on the spot, you like, and you run back into the studio and record, and that becomes Poor Boy Shuffle. Is that true?
No. Oh. But, but <laughs> I mean, we didn't, okay, it's true that, that what we were playing on the street there is what ended up being Poor Boy Shuffle, but uh, it was sort of like the last thing that we recorded for the album, I think. Mm. And in my mind, it's like, well, why didn't we get writer credit for that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's, Wait, you I mean, didn't you know, get writer just, credit on the jams? Yeah, come on. I mean, a lot of these songs, actually, Gosh. you know, uh, John would bring an idea, and we would, we would we'd rehearse it for, you know, a couple hours uh, for like a week or two, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then we'd have a, you know, it, John wasn't bringing completely finished songs, or, you know, uh, from the, until later when we, were, when we were just doing studio albums. We weren't... We weren't playing them out live before we recorded them. The first two mm-hmm. albums had been played live for a long time mm-hmm. before they were recorded. But, you know, yeah, we didn't get any writer credit for that, even though it was the same sort of thing. We were just Jeez. killing, you know, it, while the guy was taking pictures for the album cover, we were jamming. Yeah. You know, playing. And then that became, you know, when we went into the studio, it became the Poor Boy Shuffle. and. We thought, well, wait a minute, you know, didn't? Yeah. <laughs> don't you think? Uh, yeah, you deserve a little something for that. You made it up too. No one guy, it sounds like, was leading that charge. It was a group <laughs> true. Thing, right. Well put. Yeah, that, that's it. There, there, there was no general on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's 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 an album track, right? Yeah. It's, okay. Uh, but one thing, and th- and going along with Side of the Road, too, which is the other instrumental near the end of the album, they don't detract anything. They they add to the overall sense of fun and enjoyment of this album in its mm-hmm. entirety. One right. question I had, though, was that if if these songs were, these two songs in particular, were they sort of tossed off? Did they, were they filling gaps where there weren't other songs to put there instead? Or did they win over something else John had written? Um, I'm just curious, if they weren't on there, what would you have put on there instead, do you think? <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were the one, they were the chosen ones. They were the ones, one. okay. There, no, there was, okay. we, we never recorded there's nothing in the can at all. Okay, that's what I no, figured. Nothing unreleased, uh, except some stuff that we recorded. I don't think they were ever finished when we were auditioning Wally Hyder recorders in San Francisco. We went in and, and cut like four tracks, maybe two, two to four tracks, just to see how we like mm-hmm. working in the room and mm-hmm. and and what it you know what it sounded like and 
what it was like to, this when we met Russ Gary. He was a uh, house engineer, at, probably the head engineer at, at, at Wally's San Francisco at the time. So these, these, those exist. I don't know that they've ever been released. I don't know that there'd be any interest in them because mm-hmm. they're, they're not completed. And they're very early. You know, they, they weren't really credence. They were just, just going to record something and see if we like recording, working here, you know, hanging out here. Yeah. Is there any good restaurants in the neighborhood? You know, <laughs> sort of an all-around. Or do we have to get takeaway or delivered yeah. uh, Chinese? But there's no, there was never anything left for the next album or anything mm-hmm. that didn't make the cut, per se. Okay, okay. So what, what you hear is, is what there was. Okay. Well, they're fun and they're great. I just wondered if they were sort of time fillers, ultimately. Well, I mean, they're album tracks. Right? You okay. know, that's, yeah, uh, that's how you... So that's they, they're, filler, they're filler in that sense. You know, people mm-hmm. wouldn't buy the album for that track. But, if, right. if, if, but, but, but I agree with you that the, 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 the attitude... Mm-hmm. is uh in keeping with the, with the cover side Absolutely. of the road was it was a was was an arranged uh instrumental uh mm-hmm. and uh you know i guess john you know at the same time uh, maybe he was working on lyrics for it and, and just didn't like what he came up with so we did yeah. it that way okay okay uh, um all right i want to talk about track five feeling blue because that's my favorite song in the album and it might be my favorite credence song in general The transition from the end of Poor Boy Shuffle and Cosmo's drum starts, you know, subtly starting to happen as it morphs from one song to the next. Does, doesn't feel, it fade in right yes, there? Yes, yes. Yeah. They, they, you know, one so, they, they overlap each other for a second there. And you get this sense of almost foreboding, like, whoa, what is, what is this? What is coming on right now? And it is so funky. I've been. I love it, and it, it. I don't. This sounds a little harsh. I don't mean for it to, but it almost sounds like something like a stripper could just go bananas with a song <laughs> like "Feeling Blue," you know. It, def- it definitely has a deep groove, doesn't it? Yes. We, yes, it's still, my favorite. We still play that. We play it at Soundcheck. Like we alternate at Soundcheck uh, between that one and "99 and a Half." Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just. I mean, we played it. For we, you know, we've been doing revisited for 25. We're, this is our yeah. 25th anniversary, depending upon how you count the years. Okay. 
and we've probably played it. You know, at, we sound check at practically every gig where there's where there's time available, and you know, the logistics will allow. Yeah. And so one day, one day we'll do 99 and a half, and the next day we'll do uh, Feeling Blue. We used to, sometimes we throw in Don't Look Now, and if I can get Kazuo to play uh, It Came Out of the Sky, we'll play that one and sound check. So those are, those are like alternate tracks that, that we know that aren't in the, aren't in okay. the show. Feeling Blue is my favorite. That's yeah, also yeah, does that, that, that has like such a, a deep groove. It does. It could go. It's one of those things you could put on repeat for hours. And just you know, that is one of the groove. singing, singing the uh, the background vocals against my bass part is almost like I need another brain to uh, really record. Yeah, it was. I mean, I can do it now, but putting the two together was a. Oh my gosh! How do how do bass players who sing lead vocals do it? <laughs> no, no, <that's laughs> how the hell did McCartney be able to sing and play his bass parts at the same time? Usually, you know, there, there's a difference in rhythm, which you know gives it that counterpoint feel. You know, which which is what you know makes a good arrangement, so that every everything is not square and on the on the same beat all the time. You know, there's there, there's a swing between uh, the actual rhythmic part of, 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 a, mm-hmm. of a measure of music that, that these beats are falling on from the lead vocal to the bass then you got the bass drum on one and the snare drum on two and back to three and four on you know and mm-hmm. there's all these different beats you know in, in the rhythmic universe being covered so there, there's a, a really strong syncopation between the feeling blue who 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 and the bass part is da 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 Da, da, da. So it's a real drag part, and the blues yeah. are much more square. Feeling blue, who, 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 and so to, to, to make that bass fall behind the vocal, it's like patting your head and rubbing your yeah. belly yeah. <laughs> in spades. Yeah, I uh, bet. Wow, so I never so thought of it. I, I love, I love playing that song, and you know that's a, it's, a, it's pretty dark. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a song that's akin to uh, uh, Porterville. In its darkness, uh, you know, Porterville is a song about sung from the perspective of someone who has to live and be branded with uh, the crimes of their parents. Mm-hmm. You know, they, so the parents had problems and, and, you know, that affected life going yeah. forward. Yeah. So it's, you know, that, that to me makes it a, you know, a dark topic. Yeah. Uh, and Feeling Blue, it just has this foreboding. Uh, it does. It's the best. You know, evil. Yeah. Even though, I mean, okay, feeling blue, yeah, you're sad, right? But this is, is beyond that, you know, because of because of what you said, just the way it starts, the unsettled feeling about it, you know. And right. Then the guitar comes in, then the bass comes in, mm-hmm. you know, and then, then the, the vocal comes in. It's unsettling, you know. It it's is. like, you know, they, there's a, you know, then, then when you get to the lyric, you know, there's a rope hanging, uh, like a yonder, you know. <laughs> There's a rope hanging up there for me. Yeah, that's the thing. Even though it's foreboding, you don't want it to end because the <laughs> it's so good. You know. Yeah. Who's playing lead guitar? Who's like jamming? Is that is it always John doing most of the guitar work, or is it Tom doing lead guitar? No, that's all. Song? That's John. Tom. Tom it, played rhythms. Okay, I wasn't Tom sure was if they would switch off or solo and stuff. Different songs. Well, you know, John was sort of a lead rhythm player. I mm-hmm. like in his style more i'd say that his inspiration as as a guitarist you know when he was learning the instrument was you know besides the the blues guys uh was was uh 
Steve Cropper, that, that oh, okay. style of, yeah. of, you know, always being a strong rhythm player, but, you know, being able to, to solo mm-hmm. when you're so, when, you know, when the, when the vocal stopped then the, you know, the guitar would do a melody much the same as the vocal had been doing, you know, that was the solo's turn to, to speak yeah. as it were, but all the little licks and everything are, uh, uh, which there's many, you know, which mm-hmm. are just such great, you know, spicy little, uh, stings. Yeah, that's John. Okay. Uh, okay, let's move to side two. Fortunate Son, still the masterpiece that it always was. Um, <laughs> you laugh because you don't agree or because there's a story there, or what do you think? You know, it was a strong song. It's sort of anti-establishment, not exactly anti-war, but it, it, I think it, it it was addressing the inequality mm-hmm. then, and I think it's still there now. Oh, that's uh, what I was thinking. It's just uh, as fresh. Yeah, you know, we we tell ourselves, you know, we uh, got a song like Fortunate Son that points it out to us, but it, you know, that doesn't make it go away. Yeah, uh, there's you know. There's even greater, now, now we have wealth inequality. We didn't have that so much back in the 60s, even the 70s. That didn't really kick in until the 80s, I think. Uh, started in the 70s, but the 80s, 90s, and up, up through now, you know, and it's sort of what I consider, you know, a, a, an unsustainable trend for society. And, mm-hmm. and that, means, that means everything, you know, civilization. Yeah as we know it, it could be, you know, it's an existential issue. Uh, you know, it's not climate control, but, or climate uh, change, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's right up there, you know, in sure terms of what, what could be a global problem. Combine it with climate change and you, and you've got a recipe for disaster. Agreed. Uh, but anyway, the song, you know, nailed the, the, the inequality and, mm-hmm. and, it, and it pointed to like, who is fighting this war? Right. Right. You know, it's, it's, not it's not the children of the people who are declaring these wars. Exactly. They get out and of it scot-free. Well, look, even in the Civil War, you, if you were a Yankee and had any money, you could buy your way out, right? Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. contribute, buy war bonds, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As it were, and someone else would go fight for you. Mm-hmm. Early draft yeah. dodging, I guess. Yeah, according to John, it, uh, he was inspired to write it because Julie Nixon and David Eisenhower, son or children from presidents, were 
engaged to be married, I believe. And he mm-hmm. was during this is during, you know, Vietnam era. And he's thinking there's no way in the world that either of these two or these families would ever have to actually fight in the thing that their parents are perpetuating out there. And that seems really unfair. And then the song had kind of a resurgence when George W. Bush, who you might call a fortunate son, is now declaring another war just a few, you know, 10 years ago or whenever it was. And so the song just seemed even more prescient then than it probably did back in the day. You know, it's it's a universal theme here. You know, it, it is. John John's writing has stood the test of time because of just because of what you just said. He's tapped into these universal themes. His writing style is tailored to not lock his work into any, you know, not like it's not like you're writing a song about the Vietnam War that won't be that'll be stuck and connected to the Vietnam War sure. only. Sure. You know, it'll be stuck in time, which is not a, you know, if people remember for anything, that that's a good thing, but it, it won't be able to escape only to, into, in, into other universes or, or you know, right. mental, uh, mental, it won't be able to get into another room, you know, right. like Fortunate Son, you know, and it really got a huge boost and, and really got, got put into good perspective, I think, uh, with the movie Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. It sure did. And that's yeah. the largest, I believe, the largest selling soundtrack album ever. Mm, it's up there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, probably 20 million copies. Yeah. Uh, I know, I think I have an award that says for 15 million. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, and wow. this is quite, it's quite old. Yeah. Uh, you know, like a gold or multi-platinum award that was, uh, you know, given out to all of the band members way back when. You know, and it's a hard rocking tune, you know, which is mm-hmm. what Creedence loved to do. I mean, that that, mm-hmm. that was right in our in our wheelhouse. It's still just ferocious. And I remember go- piggybacking on that 1987 Rolling Stone magazine that listed the 100 best albums of the 20 previous 20 years that they had been in publication. They put out another one the following year that with the 100 best singles. And I'm trying to find it online. I can't. But so this is purely from memory. But if I remember correctly, Fortunate Son was listed the number six best single of all time at that point in 1988 or whenever this was. Yeah, it's it captures a moment. I'm curious, and this this is something I want to ask you about. When you're when you guys are assembling this album and songs for the album and you're working on them and you're maybe you're even involved in the sequencing and stuff like that, do songs like Down on the Corner and Fortunate Son, which also reached number three, I should say, do they stand out obviously as the big hits? You know, that's hindsight's perfect. I don't recall ever being able to say, you know, this this is going to be the big hit or any, anything like that. I had a, I kept a wait and see okay. kind of attitude. I mean, I, I figured that we'd get airplay on whatever we we released at a you know a certain point. I thought, well, there's no going back. This this career is is uh, is happening. Uh, yeah, I didn't know but, if you went home that day to like your wife or your girlfriend, and when she says, "How'd it go today?" and you said, "Oh." We recorded this song that John wrote called Fortunate Son, and it is going to be massive. You know, is that, <laughs> is that kind of what happens or is it just, you know, you bring your lunch pail in, you take your lunch pail home, you go home and whatever you end up with, it goes out and the world decides what it wants to love and make it. That's, that's the way I approached it. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we did some recording today. Yeah, we recorded this, recorded that, you know, mm-hmm. I think they came out well. Mm-hmm. And I, I would never 
forecast uh, the the future. I'm just I just when you were talking about this stuff, I just pulled out this uh, these awards that I have in my closet. I don't know what to do with them. I don't have enough wall space. But <laughs> from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, uh, the the recordings Cosmos Factory, the album and the track Fortunate Son were in, both inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. No way. Oh. Credence is, this is as close as we've ever gotten to receiving a Grammy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those two. Now, let me, hold on a second. Let me pull these out. Hold on. Yeah, I knew we had another one. Proud Mary is also in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Really? <laughs> yeah, so we have two singles and, okay. and the Cosmos Factory album in the Grammy Hall of Fame, but Amazing. no Grammy for... <laughs> for yours too. <laughs> well, I think the Hall of Fame's a little better, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, yeah. the, 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 the most they could give us right now is a Lifetime Achievement Award, and we keep, keep waiting. Interesting story, and you can tell it. Doug and I and other people, you know, we've been trying, you know, lobbying, mm-hmm. because Credence never even got a Grammy nomination. I'd say that's partly because the Grammys were different then. Sure. You know, music was different, and the people who controlled the Grammys weren't, you know, rock and roll was like mm-hmm. still an upstart, snotty-nosed, right. troublemaking branch of popular music sure. at the time. But and, and and our record company didn't, you know, we didn't have anybody pushing us either. You know, the people, you know, when when a when somebody gets nominated for an Academy Award, let's say, you know, the publicists and the studios start throwing millions of dollars promoting uh, these nominees in, in hopes that uh, they can sway enough voters, you know, the Academy. You have to make some noise about about what you want. And, and that's how you get a Grammy, too. You know, mm-hmm. Columbia Records, Capitol Records, RCA Records, they were all, they knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Fantasy Records either didn't know or they couldn't afford it or they weren't interested, they weren't, you know, they were being the, the beatnik label from mm-hmm. San Francisco, right. West Coast jazz label, and just going, ah, you know, it's just music, you know, people, you know, it's selling, what do we care? Yeah. Never really realizing that it, that it could sell a whole lot more mm-hmm. were a Grammy, you know, nominated, a Grammy winning song or album or single or group mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> yeah. anything like sure. that. But anyway, we're trying to get a Lifetime Achievement Award, and we're lobbying, 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 and the, finally the word comes back to us from the, the guy who you know, is the head of NARIS. The story is that we, we, we think Credence deserves one of these too, you know, a Lifetime Achievement Award, yeah. but we, we don't want John Fogarty fucking up our television show. No! Really? But, you know, Yeah! That's what, with, 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 you know, like, you know, his protests, you know, boycott this. Sure. I'm against, I'm, you know, my, my horrible bandmates, you know, they didn't want, they didn't, they didn't want a redo of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, no. Induction ceremony. That's it. And they said, no. The, the guy said, I don't want John Fogarty fucking up my television show. No way. I have to admit, yeah. when you told me you were lobbying for this, my mind goes there. I'm thinking... Are those three going to get back on a stage and accept an award together face to face? I can't even imagine it, you know. But so that guy, they, I'm thinking like now, that now guy. they now they do all those awards like prior oh. to the broadcast. Yes, so and so received you know, was not, received a lifetime achievement yeah. award. Yeah, you're not Ariana Grande, so they're not going to feature you on the actual telecast. They don't, they don't want to see a bunch of 73 year olds <laughs> up there fighting with you. Oh, it's so good. Security, call security. Credence is here. 
So anyway. Oh, uh, oh that's great. Okay. Where well, were good. we? Well, yeah. Okay. So we have two songs left. Okay. Uh, Don't Look Now, which uh, Doug claims is his favorite. So does Robert Criscow. So do a lot of... I was reading all these reviews, and so many people focus on that one as being their favorite song. two minutes and 11 seconds it's a beautiful little ditty kind of a country ditty about basically who's going to do all the work it's not going to be the hippies this is how i read it anyway hippies aren't doing the hard work that it takes to keep the country running who's going to do that work that's sort of how i read what john is okay. saying here so you're 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 uh, you're 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 right and 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 wrong again <laughs> well you're, you're that's okay you're, okay but now take take that and and take a more macro view back back out further. It's it's not just the, about this generation. It's 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 not just the hippies. It's you know it's yeah. it's, it's everybody who who has you know like I'm I i do not want to say lazy or uh, unmotivated, but you know I mean that 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 situation has always probably. Yeah existed that you know if, if if you don't do it who's going to do it well and going back to what you just said about financial disparity being such an issue in our country if the it's not going to be the rich people doing these jobs you know right uh and, you and know, if we song, build a wall we won't have mexicans to do them anymore just that's kidding. right <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm just kidding this song is 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 in my mind closely tied in in terms of message to uh, salt of the earth, Rolling Stones, it speaks to the to the same people. Yeah, you know the, the same. It is the salt of the earth that end up doing what the well said. The the people the the, the people shall we call it the 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 heavy cream mm-hmm. or the the rich butter. If we're comparing cooking ingredients, <laughs> they won't do the work, right? Yeah. It's yeah. surprise, so surprise. But 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 you know the, the irony. Is that you know? Don't look now. <laughs> it ain't you know. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> right. So to to me, I always think of those songs as uh, to, together. You know, kind of a yeah. couplet. Good point. Good point. Okay. Yeah, it is, and we and we enjoy playing that uh, at Soundcheck as well. You know, I, I don't think it would uh, move the needle in, in concert, hmm. but uh, it, it's a song that. Uh, that uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty quiet song on stage. Yeah. You know, I, uh, everybody's just strumming kind of quietly, and the, the guitar solo is 
is sort of like a corded, you know, the same sort of guitar style as uh, as Proud Mary, you know, cording, uh, you know, picking notes out of a chord yeah. uh, to solo rather than a single note kind of a solo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a and and they're multi-note chords instead of single note solo mm-hmm. kind of notes. Mm-hmm. Really light, you know, it it it, it can't be yeah. pounded. It, it's no. a, it, it requires a whole nother yeah, uh, approach. Yeah, so. yeah, it's it's a it's a much more delicate thing for a mm-hmm. for a you know a, a four and a floor rock and roll band. Sure. Uh, now, do you have a favorite song on this album? And I know a lot of people don't like to answer that question, but since Cosmo claimed this at one point anyway as being his favorite, I wondered if you did. Yeah, down on the corner. That's your favorite. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. Good. Yeah, okay. because I when we play it, you know, and this is over the last twenty five years. It, you know, I, I, I like them all, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, some more than others, of course. Mm-hmm. And and to play, to I like to play this one because when it's right, it's really right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, I believe it. Is there one you're tired of playing? And if you don't uh, want to say, you don't have to, but I'm curious <laughs> one you're like, you know, and I, I wouldn't mind if we didn't have to play that one for a while. We've dropped most of the ones, uh, you know, again, to me, I approach it as this is my job. I'm a journeyman yeah, musician okay. mm-hmm. and I, uh, and my job is to play these songs with as much feeling and, uh, and as much technical uh, expertise as I can pull together every night. Yeah. And so I really can't say that I've ever played any one of them perfectly. <laughs> Got it. So there, there's, if I, if I picked one, I'd, I'd have to be careful if it's because it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's one that I don't play. So you know, okay. I don't I, play as as well as I should, as often as I should. Okay. Uh, but yeah. okay. No, I like all the have tracks. To okay, I'm, you don't I'm, have to answer. But you know, I never listen to them because we play them all the time. I never listen to Credence in, right. in case there's something okay. I need to go back and and, and check or want to want to see. Because over the years, everything evolves, you know. And if you don't go back and check every now and then, you can you can sure. end up doing something that that's not only different; it's it's not the right part, you know. It's you, you got to go back to the source. Yeah, you got to go back to square one and, and go. Oh, okay, this this yeah. is you know. I if I just go back here now, if I want to change it, at least I'll I'll be I'll, I'll be closer to the to the the original idea. Right. Right. Okay. Um, okay, well, we already talked about Midnight Special Inside the Road. That leaves Effigy, which again is another kind of jam at the end of the album.
was that song born out of a jam? Are, are these, you know, is it, did it have a form when John writes a song? Does he bring in the sheet music and say, okay, guys, this is what we're going to work on today? Or you uh, we never used, we, we, we never used <laughs> pencil and paper. We used a, we used a, one of these little Sony uh, TC100 uh, mm. Sony brick cassette recorder. Okay. Came, came, it was like, it looked about the size of a hardbound book, and it came in a black leather case, and it had the buttons on one end, and you could open up the leather case at one end, and the cassette lid would pop open, and it had a red button, you know, mm-hmm. and you push the red button and the play button at the same time, and you were in record, and it had this, uh, it had a little meter that showed if the battery was dead, or that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it was recording a little tiny little meter about the size of your of your middle fingernail and it had this compressor in it uh, automatic noise leveler and so the first note you would hit it would clamp down the uh, the volume that would mm. cap the how loud it could go mm-hmm. and and so we'd, we'd make a noise and that would turn that on then we'd start playing so that the first note wouldn't be too loud and it would be a very, very heavy compression. It was just like no dynamics whatsoever. So you could hear pretty much everything at the same volume. So we, that's how we would practice. We would just, you know, run our recorders. We'd learn our parts, take them home, and and uh, and practice. Mm-hmm. Effigy came as a, a pretty much a complete package. It's it's in. Uh, it has the, the 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 vocal, you know, the song part mm-hmm. proper mm-hmm. with the verses and. Uh, and uh, the chorus, which is just effigy, effigy, mm-hmm. uh, last night, you know, each verse starts the same. And it's, you know, it's the song of revolution, really. Yeah, yeah. Burning of effigies is, is, the, is the, the civilized way of, of killing somebody, right? Right, right. Uh, in, in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, you burn them in effigy. And then, yeah. then you stomp the ashes, you know, you spread them. So then, then the, the instrumental session section was was semi worked out. I mean, but not note for note. Mm-hmm. No, nothing was ever worked out note for note. In fact, on, I don't recall ever playing exactly the same arrangement ever, mm-hmm. take to take, on any really? Creedence song mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, I mean, there'd be I'd have a, a bunch of ideas in my head uh, that, that I wanted to use throughout the song, kind of. The idea being building, you know, like don't do anything. Play it straight as you can, first verse, and then in the first chorus, the chorus, you know, maybe you'll do something a little different in the chorus. Then the second verse, you might add a little, you know, change the part a little bit, and you know, and so on, you know. And mm-hmm. then when we get into to these extended uh, outros, you knew the arrangement, you knew what the chord changes were going to be, and then you had a whole lot more freedom to. Right. Uh, to, to vary your part, uh, but still, you know, keep it within the uh, within the song, the original song structure. So uh, the sections were worked out. You know, the same as Grapevine. Before we recorded Grapevine, we just jammed. Really? For for two two weeks. Yeah. Or or more. We just jammed. We we just played the the, the end part of Grapevine. Mm. It, it wasn't even Grapevine. <laughs> I mean, gra- gra- Grapevine got put on the. After after we'd figured out how to have a really good you know ten minute jam. Yeah, you just needed some a root that you could yeah. grow and build and off of. So yeah. We had it. So then so then we got a song, another another cover song, that that the chords just went back and forth, just yeah. like the jam. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. 
I never would have known that. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, John, John probably pre-planned that, or at least he I would likely say that that's, that's how his mind was working. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. He never, he never told me, but uh, I, I know that we'd, we, we, because the jam part was going to be the more memorable part and the more original part, that was the part that, that, that we spent all the time on prior to uh, you know, going into the studio. We wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that we, had a, that we weren't going to end up just wandering. And, and, you know, we wanted to make sure we got something on tape that was you know, as good as that we'd ever played it in rehearsal. And so to do that, you have to, you have to kind of break it down and, and then rebuild it. Okay, this, here comes, you know, and so it has a, a verse chorus or it has a, a running order itself, not, not necessarily verse chorus, but it, it has parts. One follows the next, follows the next, follows the next. Yeah. That, we get requests for that song uh, quite often. And I bet you do. I think if we, if we took the time to learn it, it, it might be good. I don't know it's how, it would, how well it would go in concert. I don't know. You know maybe, maybe a song like Ramble Tamble would, would yeah. because it's more up-tempo, which, which, has, which is you know, an identical arrangement, really, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the larger sense. Uh, a vocal, uh, you know, a, a verse, chorus, song, uh, with you know, a story with, uh, or a, you know, a message with uh, with a, an instrumental uh, thingy tagged on the end. Yeah, yeah. You know, Rabble okay. Tamil has a time change. It goes into that double time change. I don't think Epigee ever does. I think Epigee just keeps pounding out yeah, this, I think you're right. this 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 dread. Yeah, well, it works. It works really well. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's perfect. It's a perfect finishing song for 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 a. Uh, it shows the uh, the uh, both light and dark of, yeah, of really the times. Does. It really does. Um, okay, well, good. Well, that brings us to the end of Willie and the Poor Boys. I think it, last <laughs> I heard, it sold. I think about two million copies. Do you know if it sold more than that? Do you have an idea? I'm, I'm sure it's much more than that. I guess that to where you go. But yeah, where do you go to RIAA, right? Yeah, I was l- trying to look it up and I saw two million. I thought that sounded a little low, but that was the last update I saw. So I'm, I figured it was more than that. But anyway, okay. Was what was this Willie? I'm sure it sold more. Yeah, than I Willie. think it's four. Okay, that sounds more like it. Well, good. Are you uh, now? What are you guys doing? Are you going to go back on? You're always on the road, aren't you? Are you guys going to hit it hard again this summer? <laughs> We're always on the road. We're playing again this year. We're going to do about we're going to do about uh, 40, 45 shows uh, in North America. Possibly go to South America, uh, maybe other other continents. But the, uh, this is going to look like another year. Still haven't had enough. You know, uh, to be honest, the the music is is still as easy to play for me and 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 as much fun as it's ever been. But. Uh, I think uh, both Doug and and Stu are getting tired of, uh, you know, touring. Yeah, that's what I hear. That's what Uh, I hear. I'm sure when you were uh, younger, you thought, in my 70s, I'll just be able to kick back and relax and retire. But in order to make a living, the only real way these days is to tour and to play those shows. Yeah, and, you know, we're not doing, we don't have to do this, but but, but we love doing it. and, And, you know, we... It was it was a really gas to be doing it the first five or six years, and then nine eleven came, yeah, in you know one, and that just changed travel, you know, to a complete mm-hmm. shit show. Sure, and it hasn't gotten any better. And you know, I I eat healthy and 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 get a lot of rest, and you know, I have a pretty good uh, activity level at you know uh, consistent 
there's a level, you know, high level, and then it's consistent uh, at home, and it all goes to hell when I go on the road. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to get anything that that I like eating that's healthy enough. And you know, late hours, uh, mm-hmm. tour buses. You, the, the roads in America are so in such poor condition. It's really mm-hmm. hard to sleep on a tour bus anymore. I uh, wow. which, uh, which keep at least it keeps us out of the airport. So this, you know, we're Doug and I have are, are considering uh, modifying our uh, mm. our uh, our project to the point where you know maybe we won't tour. Maybe we'll just play special events mm. okay. and, and stuff. Uh, we got all of us have. He's got five grandkids. I've got four. Okay. Uh, you know, it's uh, time to wake up and smell the coffee. Yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, I, well, I hate. I, I hate. Nobody likes a quitter, right? I hate. To, well, no <laughs> one's going to call you a quitter. Tobacco, right? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you're in your seventies. You have a. It's not quitting. It's you know slowing down as you should because you've earned it. You know, I I view it differently. Yeah, my seventy, my eighty-nine year old uncle told me that I should be considering retiring. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Man, if I, I want your life, Howard. No I, want, I want to be able to be eighty-nine and, and doing anything." <laughs> oh my gosh, wouldn't that be nice? Jeez. You know, our biggest sellers, of course, are our, our greatest hits album, Chronicle. Yeah, Chronicle uh, is is our our biggest track, you know, and and our biggest album, which is you know, our greatest hits album. Yeah, I but, think everybody uh, owns Chronicle. That that's kept us going. Uh, we still get a ton of radio play. It's, it's almost yeah. embarrassing. You know, I would hate to be a a new artist going. You know, there, there's only time for so many songs a day, and then there's Credence taking up all that time <laughs> when, when when we should be getting played. What? No. <laughs> oh man. Pearl Jam and Bon Jovi can wait their turn to come on classic <laughs> rock radio. I want to hear more CCR. There you go. Yes, yeah, CCR, <laughs> Who, the Zeppelin, yes. the Doors. Well, Doors and Zeppelin I'm a little tired of. CCR I never get tired of. Thank you so much for it's saying true. that. You're on my guest list forever now. <laughs> true. It's true. I'm not blowing smoke, man. I, who needs to hear Stairway to Heaven? Plus, we can fit three or four CCR songs in the time it takes to listen to Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, so, we you know we ran into those guys once. We were we were touring Australia east to west, and they were touring Australia west to east, and we had shows on uh, succeeding nights in Adelaide, uh, Australia, and uh, they came to our show, and then we had a gigantic party in which we destroyed the hotel room. Of course. I mean, to the point of wallpaper coming off the walls. Oh goodness! It was really. I mean, those guys were. We were, we thought the killing televisions and stuff like that, you know, was, uh-huh. was, they were, they showed us how to peel wallpaper off the wall. Oh my gosh. Re- really, you want to really wreck a hotel? Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> it was a night to remember. I don't think they thought much of us musically, uh, but, uh, but we could, we could, you know, we, oh. we, we were good party students. Good, good. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's a great color. I love it. Yeah. Well, look, thank you, Stu. You're a legend, and I appreciate the fact that you've given me some of your time twice now. I feel so honored. Well, so thank anytime. You when you get, maybe we'll do this again. We'll do this again later, okay? Okay. All right. Great talking with you, John. All right. You too. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. There you have it, the great Stu Cook. We love him around here. We're so thankful that he talks to us. All right, that's March's Deep Dive. What do you guys think of this new series of ours? I love it. 
I hope that it matters to people, even if they don't care about the album that we're talking about that month. It's just such a great excuse to bring some of these people back on and hear about the behind-the-scenes stories of some of these albums, the process, how it all comes to be. You know what I mean? I mean, these are pieces of history, and they're telling us about it. That's a really valuable thing to have. We're so lucky that they share their time with us. Um, we're going to try and do, it, like I've said, at least one of these a month. Maybe we can squeeze in one or two more. We'll see. If you're new to The Hustle, welcome. Uh, we put out episodes every Tuesday. We talk to legacy artists, long-form interviews about the ups and downs of their career. Um, you know, the highs and the lows, the stories. We love to hear great stories. Name-dropping, behind-the-scenes, minutia, gossip, whatever that might be. And uh, so I hope you go back into our archives and join us. Um, you know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And we will be back on Tuesday with another brand new episode. Thanks, everybody.